0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, My name is Di Smith, and uh, welcome to not only the 8th Hay and Why Literary Festival, but to the 8th Raymond Williams Lecture, or the event to celebrate Raymond's name and his work course, Raymond born just over those hills in Pandy. Uh, Raymond actually overlapped slightly with Eric uh, at Cambridge University in the late 1930s. I'm never quite sure what Eric's views on Cambridge were or are, but certainly Raymond's were should we say ambiguous, certainly ambivalent, but it did give Raymond Williams one of the few jokes that he told in his life. Raymond wasn't terribly big on jokes, but then who was in 1939? Raymond said that uh, in those days when he was prominent in the Cambridge Union, he got into a dispute with one of the Tory grandees of the Union at that time who said to him, Look here, Williams, don't you realize that we've got a stake in this country? My people came over with the Normans. And Raymond said, And are you liking it here?
1: LAUGHTER
0: What, what I've always liked about Eric Hobsbawm, as an historian, uh, since I was reading him in the 1960s, was that he shared the ability, with some of us who were not English, if I may put it that way, not to be myopic or anglocentric. All of his work managed to be both specific about events, nations, identities, and indeed, uh, on page 565 of this big book, and I assure you I've got that far, uh, he actually, when he's talking about nationalisms and religions, manages to bring whales in as, as, as a key identifier. He's always managed to bring that gift to his other great gift, which is to give us an explanation of why things have happened. And in those terrific surveys, not just, if you like, the specific books of bandits and laboring men, the things that so many of us cut our teeth on, but the age of revolution in 1962, the age of capital, uh, the age of empire in the 1980s, and now the age of extremes, his current history, Eric has always managed to hold those two things together and I think that it makes him amongst a a generation of historians who frankly have reshaped the intellectual life of the British Isles since 1945 preeminent. And of course it also didn't dim at any single point his passion. What we're going to do over the next hour or so is first of all to hold a, a conversation for about 40 minutes perhaps Uh, We'll talk both about The Age of Extremes, Eric Hobsbawm's new book, and about his views, perhaps, on the views of people who've written about that book. And then, uh, at some point, significant, I hope, we'll open up that discussion uh, to the audience in general. So it's a sort of uh, tribute to Raymond Williams in a different sense because it takes us back to politics and letters, that autobiography uh, that Raymond submitted to at the hands of his interlocutors of the new left, Eric is well aware that I am neither an interlocutor nor a member of the new left. So we both feel comfortable with each other as we begin. Eric, you stress in the book, right at the beginning, that it it isn't, of course, because you're an historian, anecdotal, it's not impressionistic. But, and if only by virtue of the way in which the dates of the book, 1914 to 1991, almost coincide with your own birth date and your subsequent life, it is, of course, touched all the way through by autobiography.
1: Was that difficult for you as an historian to come to terms with? It's always difficult to come to terms with. There's really three kinds of history. There's the one uh, where you deal with periods with which you have no direct contact at all. Uh, you get at them through secondary literature, through primary literature and so on, but you come there as a stranger. Medieval history or whatever it might be. There's the ones where uh, you write about your own lifetime, and there's also the in-between period, uh, which I also tried to come to terms with in an earlier book, which is just before you can start remembering yourself, but nevertheless, which isn't completely strange to you, because it goes back to the earliest kind of family photos that anybody in the family can still explicate. Uh, In some ways, that's more difficult than actually dealing with your own lifetime, because in your own lifetime, at least in the first place, you know what your bias is. Uh, You know what possibly uh, you have to check your experience against. Of course, as a historian, you've got to check it against the recorded facts as research gets them. And yet, in a way, the first thing you've got to try and do is to find out, see how far what you can remember fits and how far it doesn't. Because sometimes it does fit and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, When I was young, in the 1930s, for instance, we all thought that what was happening was a great... Uh, mobilization of forces of all anti-fascists and Democrats against uh, fascism and Nazism. Looking back while I was writing the book, and looking at the actual record, I can see it wasn't like that at all. There was very little extra mobilization against fascism until Hitler poked, you know, forced everybody... Uh, ...into a, a common cause. Um, the only parts of the world in which you might say... ...which turned left in the 1930s in any significant way... ...were Scandinavia and uh, the United States. There was nothing in Europe com- comparable to the huge shift... ...from Republicans to Roosevelt and Democrats... Now, it's a surprise, on the other hand, you sometimes find that your own contemporary period impressions are correct. Say, somewhere in the late 50s, I began to notice that I was reacting differently to life from what I'd been doing for the past 20 years. You know, coming from Central Europe or coming from there, one had always got used to the idea that. The only thing to be absolutely certain of is to have a valid passport, if necessary, with a visa, and enough money in the bank to buy a ticket to wherever you could go if things got bad. And you never thought further ahead than about six months or uh, 12 months. And suddenly, towards the middle to late 50s, you began to notice that you were actually starting to plan ahead. I said to myself, things have changed. We're we're in a different historical period. We're out of a period of crisis, like it or not. Well, now that happened to have been a correct impression. So there's that. It seems to me one's got to tie one's autobiography, if you like, And of course, there's the other, even more important emotional issue. You've got to find out, you've got to explain why you felt what you did, you thought what you did, you acted the way you did, and uh, whether it was correct or not. Exactly how it came about that you, yourself, you could treat yourself to some extent as a subject, as well uh, as as an object of of research as well as as a subject acting within it.
0: Is this what gives, I think, some parts of the book a special frisson, you know, that you feel that you're reading not just the works of an historian who's been practising over those 60 years or whatever, but also that uh, there is a sense in which you are telling... you're accounting for your own life in in a public and a professional sense. But let me take you one step further before we get into the content of the book. Because towards the end of the book, you start saying that this current generation, let's say the last 10 years, actually have no interest in history. That this current generation live, you say, in a
1: permanent present. Do
0: historians, Eric, still matter?
1: I think historians matter more than ever because of that very fact. We are, if you like, the remembrancers, whose business it is to remember what other people don't remember or what the, the mechanism of media society remembers for a day and then puts in the dustbin. Uh, they are important in other respects. If you look at cases like Bosnia or something like this, uh, historians remember things about the Balkans in the past uh, and are therefore less surprised. Historians remember the peace treaties after World War I, it's a business to remember them uh, to or at least to know about them and virtually all the major problems which we find in europe today are byproducts of the peace treaties after world war 1 and the collapse of the uh, three empires in 1917 1918 so to that extent people may not want to listen but if they were to listen, they have to go and uh, listen to historians because there's nobody, nobody else to listen to.
0: And that assumes that people are going to continue to read as well as to write.
1: Oh, I think they're going to go on reading.
0: Well, but judging with the sales of the book, that's true. If, if, <laughs> if, we, look, if we look at the content of the book uh, in terms of the format first, uh, the, I'm sure many people will have, will have read it, but those of you who haven't, uh, and those of you who have, let me remind you that Eric splits it broadly in, into the age of catastrophe, which runs from 1914 to the end of the Second World War, the golden age, which runs from 1945, and is really a reference to economic and, and social transformations, particularly in the West, down to the early 1970s, and then what he calls the landslide, this period of economic difficulty and instability and political crisis in which we we are now in and he says that at the end of the 80s one era has ended and another has begun. Well, Let's turn Eric then to an overview first. Is there anything over that whole period that unites these eras? Can we actually talk about a 20th century or are we talking about fragments?
1: No, I think what we're talking about and what gives, gives a unity if you like to the history of this period from 1914 until the present is in the first place the breakdown of 19th century civilization. You can call it different things. You can call it bourgeois liberal. You can call it liberal capitalism. But at all events, that kind of civilization broke. And for 30 odd years, it was by no means clear that it would survive. A lot of people didn't believe it survived. You can't understand the period uh, unless you recall uh, that it appeared to be in a pot- possibly final crisis, then uh, it recovered. It was restructured, recovered, and then for 25 years you get what is a mysterious but unquestionably extraordinary age. Uh, the roughly the third quarter of the 20th century, in which all the problems which previously appeared to have existed disappeared, or oh, that's, that's what it looked like. Uh, all you have to do is remember the way in which people like the late Tony Crossland or uh, the various great people in the late 50s uh, Uh, Myrdal in Scandinavia Dan Bell in the United States and all other people they talked as though the great problems had been solved and similarly of course on the other side and socialist side people thought things were okay Uh, the way forward had been found everything was going great Uh, and then uh, it happens that uh, from the early 70s on This was no longer the case. So, in a sense, what gives, in my view, the history of this short 20th century, 1914 to the 90s, its shape is, if you like, a breakdown, a reconstitution, and then once again, if not a breakdown, but uh, a slide into an an uncertain future. Uh, it's a sort of historical triptych or historical sandwich, if you like. Arguably, um,
0: and I say arguably because I think this this conversation is about Eric talking about his views on the book, um, so it's not in any sense a a confrontational interview, but arguably, and particularly since um, he actually was my external examiner 20 years ago when I did my PhD, (laughs) and I've been waiting to viber him ever since. (laughs) and you can guess who's going to win and it isn't me <laughs> arguably Eric this is a very Eurocentric view and some of your critics have said that although you've taken the world as your oyster in this book it takes you back into, into Europe but, but you yourself attack that head on don't you by saying that if you look at the great changes in what we've now come to call the third world whether they're economic modernizations or whether they're revolutions or coup d'etats or whatever that all of these, and I quote you, they've all derived their dynamics from somewhere outside themselves.
1: Yes, I I would certainly reject the accusation that this is a Eurocentric book. In fact, it spends a good deal of its time actually trying to come to terms, to analyse with what has been happening in uh, the third world one would like to have spent more time on it but in fact you've got to try and plan it in in, in such a way uh, and I thought, you know, whatever it is, three chapters would be about as much as I could fit in. Um, Similarly, uh, I think one can't measure these things simply in terms of column inches. Uh, what I say about China which is clearly one of the most important countries in the world is comparatively brief Uh, perhaps I don't know 20 pages in all Uh, yet that doesn't indicate if you actually read the book I mean you you don't think that I actually you can't get the impression that I actually underestimate this so uh, I would uh, not accept this at all Uh, I think this is true because, as you rightly say, so far the development of the non-European world has been essentially in terms of first reacting to, or second imitating, uh, the kind of dynamics which were developed in the Western world and nowhere else. Now, we may be getting to the stage where this is no longer the case. We may be getting to the stage, for instance, where, at the late 20th century, the centre, at any rate, technologically or economically, uh, may be found in, let us say, uh, East Asia and uh, Southeast Asia, at any rate, in the Pacific area. Although, even then, uh, we may still probably have to ask ourselves something that a Swedish professor once asked me when we were discussing this. He's saying, just supposing Japan is going to become what America was for the 20th century, does this mean that uh, Japan will influence our culture in the way in which the United States has influenced our culture in the 20th century? And if not, why not? And what are the signs? These are questions which I don't propose to answer, but at least they they have to be posed. So, until the end of the 20th century, it seems to me, uh, we must still regard the dynamics of uh, historical change as coming from a particular region of the world, which happens to be, if you like, the Atlantic region. What's going to happen if it shifts? When it shifts? as it has already done to the Pacific, I think that's a matter on which I wish to express no forecast.
0: And yet there's this appalling paradox, isn't
1: there, that that
0: from this region which set out and sent its ideas, particularly from what you call your century, in terms of your period, the 19th century, then the 20th century, we've had these two ravaging wars, and, and, and you begin your book by directly looking at the wars, and indeed the First World War and the Second World War, you take almost thematically together.
1: Yes, I think I take them together because it seems to me, from a historical point of view, long-term historical point of view, we will see the whole period from 1914 until after 1945 as one gigantic 31 years' war, uh, with interruptions. And yet it was fairly clear, even to those of us who lived through this interwar period, that uh, uh, another war was was likely in fact in the end by the 1930s uh, most people really expected it uh, we were trying desperately to think of scenarios of avoiding it in theory but most people really did expect it so that that is true uh, I I would myself think the wars particularly the first world war played a sinister part in destroying the values of civilization which had been gradually, in spite of everything, being built up in the 19th century. I, my periods is 19th century and the longer I uh, have been writing about it, the fonder I get of it, because in <laughs> actual fact, uh, however awful it was, one had the feeling that people felt that things were going upwards, or could be going upwards, not merely materially and technically, but even morally. And that by the end, people hoped that somehow or other, all the awful things would gradually be pushed back by uh, the the natural uh, advance of progress, if they were liberal or by a revolution which would at any rate release the potential of the natural forces of progress if they were socialists. Uh, from 1914 on, this isn't so, and the appalling thing is the gradual breakup of these, these values. The, the most appalling business, for instance, is the breakdown in war, the distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Which was, after all, the core of civilized values. If you wanted to do anything to limit what is, in essence, a barbarous and inhuman activity, the one thing you had to do is to distinguish between people whose business it is to kill and get themselves killed and the innocent bystanders (laughs) of the world. Nowadays, indeed, the entire wars are waged against innocent bystanders.
0: You, you talked about revolution as being a possible popping of, of the cork of the bottle, the, the, uh, the unacceptable pressures. But you said it, it ended before 1914, but Eric, I suppose in a sense, I mean, in your own life and in the book 1917, the October Revolution, the coming of the Soviet Union, I mean, was, wasn't, that, wasn't that all through this period, not just, for many, not just for many people, but actually in reality, I mean, a way of unscrewing that, I mean, the offering of an alternative to, to society?
1: It was. It was the offering an alternative. I think it was the offering of an alternative because people felt that there was no future the way things were going. So consequently anything that looked even faintly like an alternative was something which, uh, one, uh, which offered hope. I think, myself, uh, both the October Revolution the emergence of Soviet Russia or the planned economy as something which was considered a global alternative to Western, uh, the Western economy, Western society, was in some sense a function of the crisis, the catastrophes in which this old society found itself. Everything was going wrong after a hundred years in which uh, the biggest war in Europe not in the United States the American Civil War was really rather big but in Europe was you know smaller than the Bolivia-Paraguay-Chaco War of 1932. Uh, We find ourselves in these 31 years of world total war which the number of people killed, scattered, murdered, all the rest of it, runs into tens of millions. Uh, the uh, the institutions, the liberal institutions, parliamentary institutions, oh. appear to have been advancing constitutional government for a century, from World War uh, One on, 1918 on, until. 1945 or at least the middle of the the war kept going back I mean I've tried to calculate that in 19 there were perhaps only about 60 odd states independent states in the world in those days in 1918 probably about 35 of these give or take one or two extras in South America uh, could be regarded as parliamentary republics of one kind or another by 1942, there were 12 in the entire world which could be regarded as in some sense. So the thing was going down, down, down. And finally, and this is the thing which really was most extraordinary because it affected even the United States, which was immune to wars because nobody fought on it and which was immune to political uh, uh, subversion and so on. the economy went bust. The United States going up and really on the verge, say in 1920 and 1920s, already about to occupy the sort of position that it occupied after 1946, and then the 1929 slump, bang. In, in fact, I mean, it, it's tremendous. It's quite dramatic. So under these circumstances, this is the background against which the new hopes or, if you like, the fears and the hopes were formulated. Certainly for people of my generation, the choice wasn't whether we, between different options for the future, but between no future and some future. And, of course, the, 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 the great revolution, uh, which had inspired enormous numbers of people, the most extraordinary numbers of people, uh, people whom one really didn't really wouldn't associate with it, that seemed to be at least a hope. Uh, so I think, and then in a way, of course, we got to this extraordinary, one might almost call it the, 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 the central period of the 20th century when something very strange happened. And that is, both liberal capitalism in the United States and the Soviet Union make common cause against an enemy who appears, who was, equally dangerous to both, more dangerous than each of them regarded the other side as being. And that, uh, some of us, of course, were lucky enough to be, Raymond uh, among them, uh, to, to be young and active at this very moment. Uh, and so uh, in many ways we look back on that particular period with fewer reservations than any others I'll pick you up if I may on the, on the
0: capitalism versus communism thing later since you've, since you've raised the specter of fascism um, as the common enemy let's, let's go straight to, to one of the things you say in the book there are many, I'll, there are many statements in the book which, which, are, which are stunning Um, Gibbonian sentences which I think knock you off your perch, If I may say Eric, this is not history by Macaulay but Gibbon is a better model but somewhere along the line uh, you say that the Spanish Civil War was one of the the, uh, an appealing cause a pure cause and still seems like that um, all that time on, now now we now know all of the dirty details or many of the dirty
1: details about all of the sides of that war,
0: would you still stick with that judgement?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, uh, my my own criticism of the Spanish Civil War is, as I try and say in the book, is they didn't actually, that the Republic, for which we all were and would still be, the Republic didn't run its war very well.
0: Well, it wasn't always allowed to, was it? Some, sometimes by its allies, including the Soviet
1: Union. Well, I think they probably let's say this is a century which has quite a lot of people's wars Uh, all of them are brutal barbarous Uh, if you look at uh, another war which I think those of us at the time thought was completely 100% justifiable namely the fight of the partisans in Yugoslavia against the Nazis if you read the late Gilas's books I mean one, a man of transparent honesty about what actually happened at the time, what he did, what other people did and had to do, that's what war is. Uh, you don't support a war because uh, you think it is going to be waged exclusively uh, by uh, people with the correct moral judgments, or indeed that the awful things can be avoided. But, but so Spanish, the Spanish Civil War, I feel the same about it Except it was much, much less competently conducted Than mm. the partisan war in Yugoslavia
0: But Gilles sort of changed his mind, didn't he, as well Or at least he changed his mind about some of the things that he'd done What, what I was saying was I mean, is, is there a way, go back to the autobiographical question Where you and your youthful enthusiasm for that war Can it cloud the historian's judgment still 60 years on?
1: Uh, I would guess that if you asked any person who in 1936 had to make up his mind uh, between or her mind between uh, supporting the Spanish Republic uh, and not supporting the Spanish Republic whether they would take the same decision again uh, they would take the same decision again I can't think of anybody that wouldn't Uh, the fact that uh, within the Spanish Republic there are all manner of internal things. You might say, I should have supported a different... Uh, one of the many parties which uh, were, officially speaking, supposed to be better. That's another matter. Uh, but... Uh, I would have thought that even... Uh, uh, even the people who thought that they were being... Um, Victimized by the Soviet Union, uh, did not regard this as a reason for stopping being for the republic. It's pulling away from the cause. No.
0: Uh, You also say go back to the capitalism-communism fight in a in a broader sense. And towards the end of the book, you say some of the the ideologies attached to these um, these economic forces, these material forces, might seem in retrospect to look like the wars of religion and you talk about the 16th and 17th centuries. But, at the same time, that fight between those those two systems, and, and let, let's say from the 1930s to the 1950s, when even in the 1950s it wasn't clear, was it, that the communist system was actually uh, in, in the kind of economic danger or disaster area that we, that we see subsequently, when we, that if one measured it in terms of productivities and so on.
1: No, but I think we've got to distinguish between Uh, our judgment of uh, the communist system or any other system at this time, our practical judgment, uh, what it uh, could achieve, what its prospects were, and what its costs were, and the spirit in which we regarded the other side. I do think it is extremely important to try and emancipate yourself from this state of mind of fighting wars of religion which both sides did for many, many decades me too I mean I'm not not saying it, it, it's extremely hard to uh, I, I try and say this for instance in, in the book itself if you look at the history of the 20th century not in terms of uh, a permanent war between God and the devil defined, defined according to taste uh, but if you just look at it as it were, as somebody in a century may look at it, you won't necessarily see uh, a zero-sum game between two alternatives. One is capitalism and the other is uh, communism of the Soviet kind. What you will see is probably a continuum of economic systems uh, which at one extreme... Uh, are represented by the Soviet Union, which attempted to operate everything through a command economy based on centralized, not very effective planning, and at the other extreme, uh, a pure free market uh, economy, such as Mrs. Thatcher and, and, and Reagan tried to introduce, or pretended they tried to introduce. In between, if you look at it, you try and put yourself in the position of somebody in... 50 years, 60 years time would you necessarily uh, regard um, I don't know Mrs. Thatcher's Britain uh, uh, Sweden uh, South Korea uh, Ireland uh, and uh, Portugal as necessarily the same kind of identical uh, identical economy Rather than as different versions, different station uh, stopping places on this continuum, and yet, if I, having lived my life, think about the twentieth century it 's still very hard for me not to think <laughs> of uh, the uh, of, of, of the economy as as, as, as a dichotomy between capitalism and socialism, and only one kind of socialism and one kind of capitalism. I've got to try very hard to do it. Uh, now I think, for instance, a lot of the people that reviewed my book have not found it easy to break away, as it is theoretically possible, from uh, the uh, the religious war spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to try, you won't be able to do it, but you've got to try and see, even the other side, to see what exactly, you know, that the other side was not necessarily devilish. For people in the West, for instance, it's terribly difficult to do this, particularly if they, uh, when, when dealing with, the, with Eastern Europe and the, and the Soviet Union. Just as it was very difficult, if not impossible, for us to do it when dealing with fascist countries, which were also not quite the same. Not quite the same thing between Hitler and, and the Holocaust and, and Mussolini. I think what's quite clear uh, as you
0: read the book is that you, you do make that effort and you do break, break away from it. Um, l- l- let me switch tack slightly here because, as you can imagine, the, the book is an enormous canvas. Uh, and, and to paint as impressionistically, sometimes in realistic detail, sometimes to fulfill this metaphor in Pointerly's style is, is the work of a master. But, but there'll be gaps in this conversation, obviously, as well as in the book. But I'm very anxious that we turn, Eric, to one of the things that, that forcibly struck me as I was reading it. And that is um, to the question of the arts in general, uh, which, which you, you deal with in separate chapters, but also runs in a kind of a filament sense... Throughout the book, and y- there's a lovely bit where you talk about um, seeing um, the, the Odessa Steps sequence in the bash- battleship Potemkin in, in, a, in a cinema in Charing Cross in mm-hmm. the 1930s, and and then later on in a footnote, and only in a footnote, you say people who watch Brian De Palma's film The Untouchables if they don't get the message, they didn't see the original. Now, through this, I mean people, ordinary people throughout this century have begun to see and look and and deal with their lives and have the opportunities to deal with their lives, particularly through moving images, particularly through cinema or film, if you like now television, in ways that were unimaginable before this century?
1: Absolutely. And it seems to me, uh, the, the interesting thing is that while technically speaking, these ways of seeing or ways of communicating were already available before 1914. They really didn't come into their own uh, until uh, the the short 20th century. Uh, Certainly not... I mean, the movies had just about got to the verge of doing so by 1914. Uh, Even so, the, the logic... That's to say, the logic of an art which is produced in a completely different way from the traditional high arts uh, it took a long time, I think, in uh, establishing itself and in working its way through. Um,
0: you talk about populist French cinema uh, as being one of the few art forms of the 20th century and the 30s which actually hit the interests of the intellectual that is, they followed it and still entertained, it still told the story. I mean, are you hinting to us that somewhere along the line, maybe along with avant-gardisms and postmodernisms, that we've actually missed, missed a way here?
1: I don't think we've missed a way. The way has been found, except that it seems to me very largely avant-garde and high arts uh, have been uh, marginalised and pushed into a sort of dead end, uh, for instance... Uh, all attempts by avant-garde music to introduce electronic music have been absolute poison at the box office, and yet electronic music via rock music has become absolutely the standard uh, right. the, 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 the standard medium through which people do it. Uh, I, it seems to me that the, uh, the, the major dynamo. Of cultural change have in fact been the mass media uh, during the 20th century, Uh, or have been the technologically uh, dominated mass media, starting from uh, the press, uh, the films, radio, television, uh, and that these have in some ways. I won't say emancipated themselves from the, from, from the arts, but transformed culture in ways in which uh, people previously wouldn't have regarded as, as possible.
0: But, 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 but not just culture. I mean, uh, some of the remarks, for example, you, you, you mentioned radio there. Um, you, you talk somewhere in the book about radio liberating, and particularly liberating women and housebound women, working class women, uh, in, the, in the 1930s. Uh, where I think you say it isn't the medium that's so important, i.e. radio, but the message that they're actually suddenly plugged into other things?
1: Well, radio, I think, is is in some ways the most revolutionary because uh, it uh, became so universally accessible uh, in the West. uh, And later on, thanks to this extraordinary and, I believe, decisive innovation, the small portable long-life battery and, uh, you know, the small uh, portable radio, the transistor, everywhere. You may notice in one of my chapters in the epigraphs, I quote people from the uh, Sendero Luminoso, the Peruvian yep. sort of things, uh, saying how they're doing some action and then one of our lads had one of these little transistor radios and they listened to it and how we were being reported. Now, this means, it seems to me, that in two ways, uh, culture has become, I won't say democratized, but universalized in the sense that everybody is within access and particularly, of course, it's been the fundamental cultural change for... Married women in the 20th century, at least in this country, housebound married women. There aren't maybe all that many of them around, but there were for large parts of the 20th century. And in the other sense, it's that in most parts of the world, thanks to radio, it has become possible to uh, transform local languages, local idioms, local dialects into something which through which world the world can be brought to people who were previously completely isolated mm. to it. Uh, it's technically cheap uh to produce and in many of these third world countries you find after a year or two when people from some tribe or from some country area immigrate, it becomes financially uh viable for people to set up a little uh, radio station for these talking to them in their own language, telling them this stuff I remember being taken 30 years ago in, in Peru by the greatest expert on popular uh, culture in that country head of the museum, and say you come around and I'll show you where these people meet on Sunday mornings and I can tell you that there are now little radio stations addressed to them, but they only broadcast from five o'clock in the morning to about nine o'clock in the morning when only the Indians are up. <laughs> yeah, but the fact is, it is possible now to do this. You can see this in places like New York, where there are viable radio programs for almost everybody. There's now a viable radio, even in a big city now, you can even do this with television, with cable uh, for uh, Kosovo uh, Sir Albanians who happen to be one of the leading emigrant groups very active, taking over from the Sicilians in the pizza parlours and no doubt in other activities uh, so for people who were previously cut off from the wider culture it can be brought to them and that's, that's new That's an absolutely novel situation. Um, You have a marvellous thing in the book as well
0: about, um, for those who think it's it's just about these macroeconomics, Eric talks about those who specialise in electronics and electronic goods in New York City at the moment, and they are of course the Hasidic Jews who themselves were an 18th century Polish
1: uh, and believe in emotionalism but nonetheless are at, at that forefront. The extraordinary combination of people who have crazy views to dominate uh, modern technology, high technology. That's a thing which I think is a phenomenon of the last 30 years.
0: This is the kind of di- the dichotomy that the Welsh have been trying to get together. Crazy views, yes, but domination, <laughs> no. <laughs> we, might, we, might, we might get that. Actually, John Davies, in his marvellous history of BBC Wales, forgive me for the advertising <laughs> plug, but suggests that Wales, since the 1920s, has in some sense been an artefact created by the BBC.
1: I think that's a good deed too. that. I think, it's a g-
0: <laughs> I, I think the historian, as always, speaks the truth. Let, let, let me pursue one thing about women, if I may, before we go further. And perhaps people will want to pick it up in discussion. Because, again... Uh, coming through the book, I mean there is a a clear sense that you acknowledge the the women's movement as we now understand it and feminist consciousness in a broader sense but my understanding of what you're saying is that women, particularly women who went to work after 1945 um, and women who, who, should we say, developed consciousnesses in other ways uh, actually weren't reliant upon that kind of spearhead but were coming to it in their own terms is that fair?
1: I think there are enormous changes, major changes, obviously, the uh, entry of married women en masse into the labour market in developed countries, as well as in the other ones where they they always had to work. Uh, I think there there are changes which one doesn't entirely understand, but which are clearly of enormous importance. essentially as a church based on women, women as the genuine, pious uh, believers. Now, in the most Catholic countries, in Italy, in Ireland, in Poland, you find Poland after the communists, because while communism was on, uh, the church... uh, continued to have enormous popularity as an anti-communist organization. In these countries, you find that the, the women simply no longer listen to the moral teachings as they did in the past, uh, and this is extraordinary. Uh, it, We're not talking about emancipated women because, I mean, it happens on a much larger scale. You can't say these are only the educated or the... Uh, There is, it seems to me, a major change, a major, if you like, acquisition of consciousness by women in many parts of the world. But I don't think that this can be identified with a specific feminist movements which in the West have been very largely confined uh, to intellectual and middle class women and I'm sorry to say have very often echoed the specific interests of these particularly right. in America
0: I, I wanted you to say that because I'm sure somebody in the discussion would want to take you up on it. Three other things from me and then I, <coughs> I'll throw it open the first is a question I think of no let me take the bigger one first. Of, of all the Polaxing sentences in your book, the one that I think hits on the deep structures that you elucidate more than anything, it occurs on page two eight eight, and I've I, I turned it up, but I won't quote it. But you say that after nineteen forty five, that the that most eighty percent of the world left the Middle Ages.
1: Yes, I, that I think is you're quite right. This is in some ways the uh, a, a, a crucial sentence. I, if I remember it rightly, I said that for 80% of the world, the Middle Ages ended in the 1950s or, more exactly, were felt to be at an end in the 1960s. Right. Uh, I think this is true. Uh, and this is partly because things happened which had never happened before in history and they happened faster than ever before. Uh, for the first time, remember, we are talking about a period of time which is within the memory of people that are not not yet old something that happens within 20 years or 25 years for instance there are many countries in which the percentage peasant countries in which the percentage of the peasantry halved within 20 years for the first time over vast areas of the world the world ceased to be essentially inhabited by the human race as defined as people who dig plough uh, and look after animals uh, nothing like this had ever happened before at anything like the same speed and put it another way another thing I quote and the emancipation of women is one of these uh, the change in, 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 in mores is, is one of these phenomena too uh, education uh, I, students intellectuals, if you like, in the broad sense, say, people who get their jobs by passing examinations and having certificates uh, of a higher, at a high level, which is increasingly becoming, as we all know, to our cost. Uh, I, I regard it as a disastrous development. I mean, because I, I, I regard it, I mean, because it, 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 it actually sacrifices the great body of people who don't actually think uh, with a pen in their hand or a type, but who think with their hands by working by doing things by learning that way these people for these people there is, is, is much much less less scope today but however, we all have to pass exams, and the ones that don 't pass exams the hell with them this is the the, the present line, and yet remember that Passing exams, getting an education is a comparatively recent phenomenon, even at the secondary level. Uh, Even in highly democratic countries like Scandinavia or Holland until uh, early, quite far in the 20th century, the number of people who went to any kind of secondary schools was a tiny percentage of the age group. Uh, Students, you add up... uh, the people who went to tertiary education in Britain, Germany, France, before World War II, and it adds up to about 150,000, which is, I think, about half of 1% of the total population. Well, right now, you find more than twice as many students in Ecuador. In every leading country, they're counted in millions. They become masses of uh, politically important, uh, as well as economically important. There is no precedent of this in, in world history. You talk about 19th century student movements, the 1848 revolution, all the rest of it. You're talking about 5,000 people in, 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 in uh, two or three German cities. When we talk about student movements today, we are talking, like it or not, about... Millions in, in, in leading countries and hundreds of thousands even in quite tiny backward countries. So in a sense, all this, you can see this happening, you can see people initially not recognizing it happening. Uh, and suddenly then they discover it's, it's there, in front of them. All this happened within a matter of 20, 25 years. You figure out, for instance, a young man comes back from the war in Japan in 1947. There's maybe uh, 55% of the population are peasants growing rice. Before this young man has actually uh, retired from a job, not long before he's died, he lives in a country in which virtually whatever it is, 8% of Japanese are still in agriculture. Japan. Uh, has got from a stage where the greatest dream Japanese friend once told me of uh, Toyota immediately after the war is to make uh, cars as good as Austins. Huh? Uh, And now look what they are all this has happened uh, within a, a tangible period not centuries but something that we can actually even people that are considerably younger than myself could actually See or feel it happening—that is a thing that strikes me as the most extraordinary phenomenon about this century. And of course, this change is still going on. Youthfulness and style—you
0: uh, you talk about student revolutionary movements, but in the book, I mean, although you, you are, are as always um, able to, to see the things in the whole, when it comes to 1968 and the student revolutionary movement, particularly in Western Europe, uh, and slogans like "the personal is political." I mean, Eric, you thought it was a lot of rubbish at the time, and you still do, don't you?
1: I thought at the time it's better to have a left than not to have a left, and even uh, a left which I personally find a, 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 a bit uh, hard to take is better uh, than none. But I didn't have all that much um, enthusiasm. I mean... It 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 was marvellous, but uh, I, I, I didn't respect a lot of what was going you, on. You were teaching them, but they weren't listening that hard. Some of the ones that were listening are now writing articles criticising my book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was going to go
0: on to talk about the landslide and, but I think that's a good point to pause actually uh, because I'll pick up some of those in the general discussion as well but first of all I'd like to thank Eric Hobson very much for so far talking to us. <laughs> people must feel free to bring up any points they like. Um, I'll try and identify one and then two questions at the same time uh, on what Eric has said, but before we end there are certainly, I think, things that we need to talk about from the 1970s onwards that uh, I haven't yet had time to deal with. I suspected time would go quickly. So can I take the first question the gentleman in the front and the lady behind? I'd like to ask Eric
1: uh, more about
0: the great failure of Right, I... I'll, I'll reinterpret the questions if you can't hear. The gentleman would like to ask Eric about the great. Oh, he's got a microphone. About the great failure of socialism in the 20th century. After all, at the beginning and well through until about halfway through this century, millions of people looked to it as an alternative model and hope. And we have lived in the last decade or two through its failure. Do you think it failed because of the evils of communism or for things
1: inherent in socialism itself? Well, the only states which claimed that they were socialist were the communist states. Uh, They had their reservations because, you may remember, in the 60s they got to calling themselves uh, the states of really existing socialism, which seemed to imply that there might be other and better kinds, but this was the only kind there was, and so you better be in favour of it. Uh, I think uh, this failed... Um, it had uh, certain achievements for backward economic areas. It was particularly effective, although at varying but generally great cost, uh, in turning backward agrarian countries into modern technological and uh, industrial countries In the case of the Soviet Union, the cost was enormous, disproportionate and almost certainly greater than it was worth it. Uh, I don't like to say this and criticize it because all of us here actually uh, are in the debt of the Russian people which has suffered more than any other people in the 20th century and the reason why we are here is very largely because uh, they did so suffer. If, if, if ever a, a people—I don't talk about regimes—but if ever a people deserves our respect, uh, if if they hadn't beaten Hitler, we would not be sitting around here having this discussion. Uh, That's, that's, that's not making a case for the Soviet regime which I must say in retrospect I think the costs except for the fact of defeating Hitler the costs were disproportionate as far as the rest was concerned it seems to me that socialism that's to say the policies of social democracy were not a failure uh, they were an extraordinary success particularly in the uh, 30 years after World War II. they were enormous success in those countries in which they were uh, applied earlier on, such as Scandinavia. Uh, And I think it's an enormous mistake. It is falling victim to uh, the 1980s hype of uh, neo-free market theologians uh, to underestimate uh, the extraordinary success—not uh, merely economically, because in a sense uh, the uh, the economies of this country and of most of the West uh, worked best so far uh, when the social democratic policies were applied as, say, a mixture between uh, private capitalism and uh, collective uh, state. Management and uh, negotiations between uh, the various social interests. So I would not uh, say that... Uh, I mean, I think what has gone is the hope that these policies of social reform and of a modified capitalism would somehow lead to a completely different society. Uh, the reasons why they've gone uh, vary, but nevertheless at the moment there are fewer people who believe that this is an immediate prospect. Nevertheless, I would bitterly oppose anybody who wants to say uh, the policies of uh socialist, socialist movements, socialist parties have been a failure. Uh, here again, none of us here would live as long uh, Uh, be as well educated uh, and uh, be as healthy as most people in the West are without them
0: There was a lady a row behind two rows behind
1: Um, You spoke about the influence of um, radio and other forms of communication in this century I just wanted to ask about your um, opinion of the global internet and uh, what you thought the importance of virtual reality would be in our private and political lives um, in the next century? Uh, The global Internet is obviously, uh, like so many of the other uh, revolutions in communications, makes things possible to previously absolutely unthinkable. For instance, it is now possible uh, to stay at home, theoretically, uh, even here in Hay and have direct access to every leading research library, at least their catalogues, uh, in the world. Uh, A number of other things. Communications are possible between groups. So, uh, in a sense, uh, the global Internet has made it, or uh, computer direct link-ups have made it possible to bypass... The monopoly of news of authorities, uh, which uh, was previously very difficult. For instance, during the uh, revolt in uh, the the attempted coup in Moscow in 1991, uh, people in Moscow were being kept in touch, I happen to know it, by by teachers in Stoke-on-Trent with whom they had established. Uh, relationships on an earlier thing and they kept uh, telling them through uh, email what the latest news was that they could hear from BBC. Now that's the sort of situation that is only possible in the modern technological uh, uh, revolution. What the other possibilities of the global internet are uh, I, I don't know. There's an enormous amount of hype particularly by people who want to earn money out of it, uh, but exactly how it is going to be actually used, how it's going to shape up, we don't know. Essentially, the basis for the global Internet, as, as I understand it, is A, the uh, American army or the armed forces which needed an international communication uh, by electronic means, and B... Much more positively, the international conversation between academics, the internet especially was established by people who didn 't want to earn any money in it. This is why, in fact, the internet it doesn 't belong to anybody it is free uh, and to make it possible for people all around the world to communicate and to talk. but exactly how that is going to be utilized, luckily, historians are not profit. Yeah,
0: now, if you would not all been in the blue bore at quarter past 12, but listening to Radio Wales, you should have been. You'd have heard a very good discussion on the difference between the information superhighway and the internet. And some of these questions would have been explicated. <laughs> but that also allows me to, if I may, to raise one point with Eric, which I think is quite important, since science has been touched upon. There is one chapter in this book which actually looks at the whole of the 20th century and says, tragedy everywhere, but maybe progress. And that, that chapter, Eric, is about science. And you almost hold your hands up at the beginning and say, look, we're all the benefits of the technological advantages of this, but we're all actually, in the end, ignorant of it. You were in college with Turing, um, who, you know, who invents computers. You were there when Crick and Watson do DNA, and you didn't know bugger all about it.
1: That's absolutely true. Nevertheless, I do believe, uh, and this is the point of my chapter on science, which I obviously had to have vetted by people who know more about it than I do, uh, that if the 20th century can go down in history as something other than a century of disasters and catastrophes, it is essentially because of science and what science has achieved, including the positive things that science has achieved for man. And I'm strongly against uh, the present fashion for denigrating and knocking a science as a rational or the, the, the rational pursuit of truth. Right. Not least because up to the present, scientists are one of the very few bodies of people that have actually been immune after all in the Soviet Union scientists were even at the worst period the closest thing to what could be regarded as a body of citizens Uh, and uh, I think until quite recently nowadays even this bastion of civilization may be falling Scientists, on the whole, were not interested in earning a lot of money. Even now, many of them are interested in good conditions for their labs rather than in the way in which uh, former managers of nationalized electricity companies are uh, in getting themselves six or seven-figure salaries and, 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 and options. So I, am, I continue to be An old-fashioned believer in rationalism, progress, education, and science as uh, I suppose it's fair enough to be uh, in the year in which uh, a splendid new biography of Thomas Paine has been published for the 18th century. The 18th century is not my century, but the century of my values.
0: And that's in the book too. Right. (laughs) There's a gentleman in the front here,
1: a gentleman at the back.
0: Microphone just being passed
1: can, I, can I ask you a specific question? The uh, you, you chapter on revolution and uh, there's one, you've got one uh, reference to Bavaria after the First World War, and the setting up of a communist system in Bavaria in 1919. How far do you say that that system was a prerequisite for the rise of Nazism in Bavaria and Germany generally? It's hard to tell. I, I do mention the, the Bavarian Soviet Republic, uh, B- Munich being, as you know, the capital both of the counterculture, the artistic, greatest artistic centre, and also, of course, the capital of beer. Uh, I would have said that the, the beer aspect of Munich is probably more relevant to the rise of Nazism than uh, <laughs> the uh, art aspect. There's a, there's a gentleman with a beard here. You mentioned at the start of your talk, you divided the 20th century up into several years, and you mentioned the age of the third quarter. Uh, Would you say that the change in the latter quarter has come about through a realization at all levels, governments and individuals, that the world forces are not infinite? um, And this might have been a very large factor... Yes, it's clear that uh, the, 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 the whole problem of ecology and the environment has become urgent in, since the 1970s. Interestingly enough, it became urgent simultaneously. It was taken up as a campaigning issue simultaneously in the West and in the East, in the Soviet Union, as it then was. I don't think that these problems have been solved. On the contrary, I mean, it seems to me one of the most dispiriting aspects is that after 20 odd, 30, almost 30 years of discussing about this, uh, we still find ourselves sort in of a situation like where the the seas are being fished dry of fish, and nobody is doing anything very effective about it yet. Uh, I think, more broadly speaking, it is certainly the rise of a global economy and the extraordinary expansion of the range of production, the sheer quantity of production, uh, which has produced problems which sooner or later people have to face and of which they became conscious at any rate. But I would say the real major immediate problem is one which hasn't been completely recognized, namely the unmanageable character... Of the breakdown at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. Uh, We've had three major periods of breakdown in the 19th century after the First World War, after the Second World War, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which amounts to uh, the defeat in a Third World War, which didn't take place uh, without fighting a war. Now, after the first two wars, in some ways or other, some kind of stability and economic uh, restoration was comparatively quickly achieved. Within about five or six years after 1918, six years if you like, uh, the Western economy was back again, roughly speaking, where it was uh, before the war. Uh, and uh, advancing Uh, the international situation it didn't last but it appeared to look at any rate as though it had been temporarily stabilized after the second world war again within about six or seven years in a sense stability both internationally and also that the economy both the economies in east and west worked again now what you've been having now is first of all the total abolition of an international system. There isn't any. What's happening in ex Yugoslavia is, is is a clear demonstration. There is no that there, there is no way in which there's no authority, there's no agreement, there is no way in which anybody is in a position to solve the problems which arise out of the transformations Uh, ...of a vast area of the globe, including most of Africa, most of large parts of Asia and so on. But second, if you actually look at it, uh, the best that you can say of the uh, uh, ex-communist economies, except for China... uh, ...the best that you can say is that in some cases they have stopped contracting so far from being back again you see after the 1917 revolution in Russia by 1926 even a country whose economy had been completely destroyed between 1917 and 1920 was back again roughly where it had been in 1913 if you look at this now in eastern Europe even the best off of these countries like Czechoslovakia and Hungary are 25% 30% down on what they were in the late 80s, which was not a world c- championship uh, uh, state of their economies. And as for these places like the ex-Soviet Union, they're still going downhill. Now, this this is a novel situation. Uh, we haven't in this century been in a period where the crisis appears to be so unmanageable i mean no doubt in 10 years 20 years 30 years who knows sooner or later some kind of both international stability and a stabilization of the economy may well be achieved and will be achieved again after all after the american the latin american colonies of spain became independent it took about 30 40 years before they kind of got back into something like uh, stabilisation. But this is something like this is a situation we are now facing. And you can see it. There is no way of uh, knowing how to cope with these problems at the present. And the seriousness of the situation is one which we tend to underestimate simply because we are not directly concerned. We've had kind of a very bad uh, slump, the worst slump since the 1930s, But and people are worried about it, but we are not actually in a disaster area at the moment. But over a large part of the world they are.
0: We're, we're running out of time rapidly. Uh, I, I did promise a gentleman with a yellow pullover an, and a moustache halfway up that he could ask a question if he can ask it quickly. Or if you sh- shout it out, I'll, I'll give it He's coming... Ah, thanks. I wanted to come back to what you said earlier on about much of the development in the third world being essentially reactive and I wanted to ask how you see Islam which has been a resurgent force really certainly in the, the bit of, of your work that we haven't talked about the last 20 years and whether you see that simply as a, a reaction to the, champ- the, the um, uh, victory if you like of economic liberalism in the West Um, or whether you think it's a more important secular trend than merely sort of kicking against the traces of of what has happened in the the West in the last 50 years?
1: There are two things to be said. One, in most of these apparently regressive developments like Islamic fundamentalism, uh, they are not actual returns to the 7th century AD. If you actually look at, say, Iran... Uh, Iran is a modern Western territorial state of the kind which has became standardized in most of the world since the French Revolution. And it hasn't changed. To that extent, the, Islam, the Islamic fundamentalism is a top-dressing, uh, as well as being, as a matter of fact, also an innovation. It's not a return to tradition. The other thing is, however that it is now possible we have discovered that it is possible to combine ideologies which have no relationship whatever to the actual realities of the 20th century with an adequate control more than that uh, satisfactory relationship with modern high technology Uh, and that introduces a new phenomenon uh, that is to say, there is no longer a straightforward correlation between high technology and a rationalist or enlightened ideology. The only thing you must avoid if you've got an ideology, however crazy like the one of these characters in Michigan and Montana, the only thing you've got to avoid is to stop the ideology actually interfering with the way you use your computer. But if you use a computer in the way in which you are supposed to use a computer, uh, what you think when you're using it and the messages you put on it are completely irrelevant. Now that introduces, as I say, a, a dangerous new element in the world and not necessarily one confined to the third world. Uh, you see this in places like India with uh, these uh, the BJP, the sort of active Hinduist uh, exclusive part. You see this in lots of places. A lot of the ideologies which are coming up at the end of this century are uh, pretty nutty products. Some of them have got a better historic pedigree than others. Uh, but... Uh, most of them I find pretty disagreeable, and yet the combination of these things with a capacity to run a high technology civilization, well, it worries me. I'm bound to say.
0: I, I'm I'm very high tech. There's, we've had a red light on here for a long time, which tells me <laughs> tells me that I should have been calling it to a halt. But I think the opportunity to hear Eric Hobsbawm speak at length uh, and clearly the size of